Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Glimpses, a CFAT podcast. I'm Josiah Corson, and we're going to be going through one of my grandmother's stories today. We're recording a session with her going through her workbook, Untangling the Web of Poverty, with several of our interns and staff. We're going to be releasing those later. So if that's something you're interested in, you should definitely get a copy of that book. It is a really good resource. does not matter your age or where you are in life. This helps us understand poverty and why people are within it, and it is really good insight into that world. Uh, we are all in poverty in some way, shape, or form, whether that is spiritual, emotional, physical. It is much more complicated than people realize, and it is a great read. But this is going to be a short story within this book and within one of our lessons. Like I said, the 13 children. It is a very impactful moment in my grandmother's life and my grandfather. This is one of the early moments that led them on the path that they are on today, that led them to founding CFAT. So if you would sit back and enjoy this story. But I guess that I had an experience in Costa Rica and that was when our first child was three years old, little Chris, and our second child was three months old. And we were going to the language school because Ken and I at that time were looking for what our uh, life's work would be. We knew we wanted it to be something for God and for humanity. And um, so we thought we, we should learn Spanish so that at least in this hemisphere we could uh, speak to people in English and Spanish, the major languages here. And we went to San Jose, Costa Rica. And instead of living in the um, apartments for the students that were in the missionary language training school, we decided let's use this time to live among the poor and walk in their shoes. And we found a house that was safe enough for us to take the baby and our little boy and moved out in the slums in Barrio Beatriz. Now, it's not because Costa Rica was such a poor country. Actually, Costa Rica is the best off, materially speaking, and in many ways of all the Central American countries. But... It, this could have happened in our own country. Um, in this slum area, uh, there were rows of houses, and there was no sanitary system, and the ditch in front of our house down the road was where um, the sanitary... Um, the waste was dumped through a yeah, lot of Yeah, and it just... You know, it was washed. The human waste, yeah. That's right. It was on kind of a slope, and so the rains would wash it on down. And children jumped over it and played all around it. And there was a hole at the back of the row of houses where we lived where people would dump their garbage, although there wasn't much garbage because people recycled and used every little thing. And... and uh, Outside our house, 
on the porch every morning when we woke up there would be a group of children sitting there quietly not to bother us waiting till we got up when they heard us moving around they'd knock on the door and ask to empty our garbage for us well that was a help I let them empty it and one day I followed them to see why they wanted to empty our garbage and found them fighting over a banana peeling in our garbage because they were so hungry. And that was kind of shocking to me. And we began... <clears throat> sure, because this also, this is early on in a lot of your mission work as well, is it not? Like you, oh, oh, this yes. is very early. So this is something that yes. you've not been introduced to before. One thing I would also like to, to point out is so you're going to school to learn Spanish, so you're probably still learning a lot of your Spanish at this point. Yes. Um, and as well, this is a choice that you made to stay in the slum area. You had options to stay in proper housing, but then you and Ken decided we wanted to stay in the slum area. Exactly, because we decided we could be educated on two fronts, in the school, in the language, but in the environment with experience, because life experiences sometimes, uh, you know, have more effect on us than what we learn from a book, although we need both. Right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and this is a, a good first lesson here is as these children are taking out the trash, you're beginning to see this poverty firsthand and, right. the, and how harsh that can be. Right, and it hurts so bad to see children uh, outside our window looking in when we were trying, I'd try to fix a balanced meal for my family, and we were there on a shoestring. We didn't have um, much financially, but we had enough to eat. And to see these hungry children just looking at our food, and so we would go out and give them and give them and give them, and <laughs> until we didn't have any more to give. I mean, we would we didn't have enough for. I didn't have enough for my own family if I kept giving. But one day it came to a head for me when a little girl knocked on my door up in the day. And she said she was 13 years old, but she didn't look bigger than eight. But she was what they call stunted. You know, that's that's where they just can't develop. They can't grow well for, because of intense malnutrition and she she wanted to be my maid and I said honey I don't have a maid I do my own work I can't afford a maid and she didn't believe me and she was right she said I will work for three dollars and a half a month and I'll do everything I'll be here at sunup and I'll leave at Sunday on seven days a week and I, I know how to cook because I worked for another lady that taught me how. And she said, I'll cook. Uh, I can make good rice, she said. And, and she said, I will wash, I will scrub, I will do your clothes. You know, we didn't have laundromats. This was in 1964. And there were not laundromats in Costa Rica. And we had no washing machine. We did everything by hand. And she heard my baby cry, and she said, 
oh, I'll take care of the baby, too. Well, I, I thought this is just a little little um, beggar trying to get in my house. I said, why would you work for $3 and a half a month? And she said, even in Costa Rica, you know, even in 1964, that was too cheap. And she said, because my dad died three months ago, and since then, one of my little brothers has died because we haven't had enough to eat. And she said, my mother's sick, and she has a new baby, and her milk has dried up. She's got a high fever, and we don't have any milk for the baby. And more of my family are going to die if I don't find a job because I'm the oldest child. I have to help my mother. And I thought, oh, this is just a little beggar's tale. Nobody could be that poor. And I said, well, I won't hire you, but I'll go see your mother. And so I followed her. We went together about a quarter of a mile in this slum area. And I carried my three-month-old Kathy, and my Chris was a toddler beside me, three years old. We walked down when we got to their house, the little house wasn't very big at all. It was about 10 by 12 or 8 by 10. I don't know. It was a tiny little one room with a dirt floor, and it was made out of slabs. You know what slabs are. The uh, You don't know. It's the bark of trees. At the sawmill, they trim off. And, you know, they get some wood with it as they trim off the sides. And it's not even, it's not like lumber that's even because the bark, uh, you know, is just what they're throwing away. And so they pick up that usually people use it to burn for firewood. But they took it and her husband had made a little shack out of that. Inside, they had brought newspapers from the garbage and used um, thin mud to plaster the walls and stick the newspapers to it so it covered the cracks between the slabs. And <clears throat> at the bottom, uh, it just hit the ground. So when it rained, I found out that night when we came back, the rain would come in under under the walls and actually make a mud hole there in the middle of the little room uh, where the children were trying to sleep on the floor. But at that moment when I went in, uh, she, there were two articles of furniture in that house. One was an old cot with... Um, wire webbing and it was broken and what is my word shackledy I don't know if that's an English word but you know what I mean by that it, it had been thrown out and the children found it in the garbage and brought it home to get their mother up off the damp floor so correct me here it's more like a, a bed frame with just the metal like wire webbing yeah where you would put your mattress on top of that that's right, right. but there was no mattress yeah and <clears throat> and there was not even a quilt or, or a blanket or anything. Uh, and, and they did have 
a blanket. There was one of them, but they used that for the children. And, and that night when I came back, there were heads sticking out of all four sides of the blanket on the floor where they all tried to get under it because Costa Rica, you know, is subtropical. It doesn't freeze, but it's chilly. It's plain cold when it rains, and especially up in the mountains, which Jose is, San Jose. And so there were no windows in it because they were just wanting protection from the wind. The only thing was the door that you go in. And when I went in, there was that cot, and the mother, the sick mother, was lying on it with this little baby that didn't have any clothes, but it was wrapped up in rags, just wrapped around it. And um, there was a table that was not sturdy either. You could say it was shackledy. And... It had on it a cup with a broken handle and uh, a medicine bottle, which they had found a nipple and put it on it, all these things out of the garbage. And they had put water in that to try to give the baby something to keep it from dehydrating when the mothers um, didn't have milk for the child. And the mother slipped over and invited me to sit down on the edge of the cot. And I sat there and tried to take in the situation. And, you know, you always try to say something to break the ice and get started and to know someone. And especially if there's a child, you can say, oh, how cute your baby is, or talk about the child to get a mother involved. But there was nothing cute about a baby dying of hunger. That was my first time to experience what the books tell us. And I, I looked at the baby, and I thought its little cheeks were sunken in, its eyes were sunken back. It was dehydrated. And <clears throat> I, I tried to think of something to say, and I said, How old is your baby? I thought that would be a neutral question. And the mother said, three months old. And then I wished I had not asked because I knew she was going to ask me. And she did, how old is yours? And I was holding little Kathy who was healthy and cooing and a normal baby. And I had to say, three months old. They were born the same week. And the mother picked up hers and handed it to me. She wanted me to hold it. I had Kathy in one hand and, the, and her baby in the other. And there was such a difference. I could see myself through the eyes of that mother who was powerless to help her child. And God wasn't through with me yet. That was the first stab where reality began to set in to what the life of the really poor can be. She struggled to her feet and went over to a dark corner in the room 
and there in the dirt sat this little boy, naked, dirty. She, I could say she could at least keep him clean, but the only water was half a mile down the road, and one faucet for all these families. She would have to stand in line a long time, and once she bathed the children, she had no place to put them except back on the floor or on that cot with her. And <clears throat> she picked up little Carlos, and she held him out to me. I'd put the baby back on the bed and on the cot, and she set him in my lap, and she said, This is Carlos. He's my little crippled boy. His feet were turned inward. And she said, um, He's three years old. You know, this had to be God speaking to me because just as I looked down at Carlos, I looked up, and my little Chris, three years old, born the same month, her Carlos, ran past the door running and playing outside with her older children. And I said, those feet can be fixed. I know they can, because my Chris had been born with a foot, one foot, just like her little boy's feet. But he was born in the United States. He was not six weeks old until his foot was in a cast. And by the time he was three months old, his foot was as straight as yours or mine. Even Chris would not know today. He's a grandfather today, and he has had a good life, and he would not know that he had been born a cripple if we had not told him, because he's not a cripple. I looked at those feet, and I said, they can be fixed. She said, I know. When my husband was alive, he took him to the crippled children's clinic. She said, it's free here in San Jose, but it's on the other side of town, this big capital city. And she said, it took him all day to walk there. He got there just in time, and finally, they, before they closed, they finally looked at his foot, and they said, yes, but it should have been corrected earlier. He's three years old now, but we can still do something but you'll have to bring him back for therapy. I've forgotten how many times a week, once or twice, twice I think it was. And he said, um, you'll have to bring him twice a week, and then uh, with therapy, he will be able to walk. And she, she said, that was impossible. She said, my husband died because he didn't have enough to eat. And he would go out every day looking for jobs that he could pick up to try to bring something home to eat that night to the children. And he didn't eat enough himself in order to bring them enough. And she said uh, it's, it was impossible for him to take two days a week off. Besides, he couldn't get there and back. They had to sleep on the sidewalk on the way back. 
I said, but there are buses in Costa Rica at that time. In their money, um, a bus trip cost a penny and a half. So that meant round trip was three cents. I said, for three cents, actually I said it in their money, for that much, you could ride the bus and take him there. And she said, oh, I know. You don't have to tell the poor their situation. They know it. She said, I know it costs three cents. That was utterly impossible for her. Like $3,000 a week or $3 million a week would be for me. And Carlos began to cry, and I set him down on the floor. He didn't want us to keep looking at his little legs, and he pulled himself with his arms and drugged himself out of the house. And later when I went home to try to prepare a balanced meal for my family. I saw him there, crying softly to himself, flies swarming over his dirty little body. We went home and got food and brought it back. But that night, when we got back, it was raining and the children were already asleep under their one quilt, and the water was running in the smallest one's feet were lying in the mud hole in the house that the water was puddling up in. And we brought food, but it was too late for the baby. The baby couldn't even sulk. It was so weak. It couldn't even cry. I took it in my arms and tried to give it the infant formula we bought for it. And it just looked up to me with those sad little brown eyes. And, oh, oh, that's the only sound it could make. It couldn't even cry. That baby died in my arms. It doesn't take more than one child to die in your arms before you know you have to do something about it. And that experience so impacted Ken and me that we knew God had allowed us to have that that was so close to the ages of our own children. And so... We decided we why we've got we've got to do something about this. What can we do? We can't get enough money to feed the whole world, the half of the world that's hungry. What? Why are they sick? I mean, why are they in poverty? And we dedicated our lives to trying to search the reasons, the roots of poverty. That was in 1964. And we have not found total answers because the question is so complex. But we definitely have found some signposts along the way that have pointed us to things that can help the poor take care of themselves because we believe it's not God's will 
for America or for any people or for any wealthy people to feed the world. It is God's will for everybody to be able to feed themselves, to be independent as far as taking care of themselves and have the freedom to do so. But there are reasons why they can't. And those were the things we began to discover. And therefore, this book, which took many years for us to write because we collected the stories through the years that were the signposts that pointed out things to us. I am an English teacher. I did not study community development. I did not study wealth and poverty. I wish I could go back and study it formally like some of you here have. It would be a great asset to start with that information. But I didn't know about those things when I was in college. I became an English teacher. But you know what I know about poverty? I've learned from reading myself and mainly from our experiences. As I said earlier, in seven countries in Latin America and five states in the United States. And that is the result, that is why this book is the result of those years of study. Thanks so much for tuning in this week on our second episode of the CFAT podcast, Glimpses. We know this story may be a difficult one to listen to, but for us here at CFAT, it's a reminder of why we do what we do. For more information about our mission, please visit cfat.org. See you next week, Friday at 5.